Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Last week, we continued our Follow Me sermon series in Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. And in that passage, Jesus made two sobering statements. Statement number one was, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then statement number two was, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus spoke those words to two eager but naive men, both of whom desired to follow him, or at least they thought they did. But Jesus was warning them that following him will not be a cakewalk. It may result in being rejected by those around you. It requires a willingness to prioritize him above everything else in this world, even our own families. So in short, Jesus was telling these two men to count the cost before they commit to following him. And that same lesson applies to Christians today. We too must count the cost of following Jesus. Are we willing to risk rejection and alienation for our loyalty to Christ? Are we willing to leave behind things we hold dear, if needed, for the far greater treasure of being in Jesus' presence for eternity? There's no use in beating around the bush, sugarcoating it, or softening the hard truth that following Jesus will not be easy. But make no mistake, following Jesus will be worth it. But this week we move one chapter ahead to Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. And once again, Jesus has the audacity to look a man in the eye and command him to drop everything and follow him. Then and there. And just like the four fishermen back in chapter 4, this man does just that. But what do we learn about Jesus from this specific encounter? And even more so, what do we learn about Jesus by looking at the man that he calls to follow him? So open up to Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Feel free to use our Bibles here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we go further, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for beautiful weather. Uh, thank you that after a couple weeks of cancellations, uh, whether it's a Sunday morning being canceled or a small group being canceled, uh, thank you that we can be here together to worship you. And you've brought us here from all kinds of different places. Uh, we have likely all had very different weeks. Uh, some of us have had very uneventful weeks. Some of us have had very exciting weeks, and some of us have had very stressful and frustrating weeks. Um, but Father, regardless of where you've brought us from, regardless of the things and the baggage that we bring with us, thank you uh, that you graciously call us into your presence. Thank you that you allow us to call you our Father uh, through what your Son has done for us on the cross. Thank you for his broken body and his shed blood that we remember at communion. Thank you for the opportunity to give. Thank you for the opportunity to sing, the opportunity to pray, the opportunity to hear and read from your word. And Father, I pray that our worship this morning 
uh, would be uplifting and encouraging and convicting and challenging for us, uh, but more than anything, that it would be glorifying to you. We worship you. We worship your son. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. Well, in Matthew chapter 9, it becomes apparent that Jesus has a flair for doing things that are a little bit controversial. So, for example, in verses 1 through 8, the scribes are shocked that Jesus claims the authority to forgive sins. They're shocked by that because that level of authority belongs to God and God alone. So for an ordinary man to claim that power for himself would be nothing short of blasphemy, a crime punishable by death. But of course, we know that Jesus is no ordinary man. And then you look at verses 14 through 17. And in that passage, John's disciples are perplexed that Jesus and his disciples don't fast the way they and the Pharisees do. After all, shouldn't someone claiming the authority to forgive sins take their religious practices a little bit more seriously? Jesus has a knack for controversy. So in both of those passages, Jesus does things that well-respected Jews find irreverent. But then right in between them, where we find ourselves today, verses 9 through 13, Jesus does something that many around him would have found unconventional at best and scandalous at worst. So let's read verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. So Jesus commands Matthew, also known as Levi, to follow him. Now what's so scandalous about that? What's the big deal? Well, Matthew is a tax collector. The worst of the worst. Tax collectors often bought their way into their position. You didn't get the job because you were honest, upstanding, or trustworthy. You got the job because you knew the right people and you paid the right price. And then once a tax collector actually got into the position, they were notorious for inflating how much people actually owed and keeping the difference for themselves. Tax collectors were considered corrupt, crooked, fraudulent scoundrels. And worst of all, they got rich doing it. And as if all that is not already bad enough, Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. That means that in a roundabout way, Matthew was collecting taxes for Rome. He was selling out his countrymen by working for the enemy. So Matthew was a slimeball. But even worse than that, Matthew was a traitor. And then along comes Jesus. And out of all the humble, godly, upstanding people that Jesus surely could have picked, he tells Matthew to follow him. Now, what will the scribes think of this? What will John's disciples think? What will his fellow Jews think? What will Jesus' own disciples think? I mean, sure, fishermen weren't exactly royalty, but they definitely weren't tax collectors. Do they really want to associate with somebody like that? At this point, Jesus' public relations team 
would be pulling him aside and saying, hey, Jesus, you might want to walk this one back. But he's not even done yet. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, you know the old saying, the only thing worse than one tax collector is a whole bunch of tax collectors. And right after Jesus calls Matthew, he proceeds to share a meal with an entire group of them. He enters Matthew's home and kicks his feet up. Luke calls it a great feast. Jesus is completely comfortable reclining with this ragtag band of sinners. He rests with them, speaks with them, eats with them, drinks with them, listens to them, and laughs with them. Jesus dares to treat tax collectors, tax collectors, like human beings created in God's image. Now, of course, the Pharisees simply cannot abide this irresponsible behavior. They already knew that Jesus liked to push the envelope, but this time he had gone way too far. So they asked Jesus' disciples why he would do such a thing. Luke provides yet another detail saying that the Pharisees grumbled at Jesus' disciples about this. I mean, doesn't he know who these people are? Doesn't he understand how this looks? Doesn't he realize the message that he's sending when he treats these deplorables like friends? Why would any self-respecting religious leader, or really even any observant Jew, put himself in a position like this? But then, as you see so many times in the Gospels, Jesus knows exactly what the Pharisees are thinking. And his response is simple. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, really, what else did the Pharisees expect? Doctors don't spend all their time with healthy people. They spend their time with sick people. Right, Carl? And in the same way, the Savior doesn't spend all his time with people who don't need saving. He spends his time with people who need to be saved. You know, the Pharisees got a lot of things right. When it came to the law, they knew it like the back of their hands. They memorized it. They loved it. They taught it, and that's all well and good. That is very admirable. But when it came to God's mercy, the Pharisees were clueless. It's great that they knew the rules, but tragically, the Pharisees didn't know the God who wrote them. 
Now, when I was in high school, my lunch companions in the cafeteria were annoying. Not me, just them. And when I say that, what I'm getting at is that we didn't do anything really awful. We just did your standard blowing straw wrappers across the room. We tried to throw up balled up chicken sandwich wrappers into the trash can 30 or 40 feet away. We played hockey with the lids from our orange juice bottles. Just pretty standard, run-of-the-mill, high school mischief. But then one day, the cafeteria custodian pulled me aside for a little conversation. And if you can picture this man, he was very old, but he was tall. And he looked very strong. And he had a tattoo of a woman on his forearm that looked like he probably got it in the military. He was known to pick up people's apples off their trays in one hand and crush them. That's what he did. So you can picture this man's commanding presence. He was very intimidating. And I still remember the wise and poetic proverb that he shared with me that day. And since it's Kid City Sunday, I toned it down a little bit, but you can figure out the rest. The custodian shared with me that day, if you sit in crap, you'll smell like crap. That was his proverb. That was his rough-around-the-edges way of saying, choose wisely who you surround yourself with. Choose wisely who you surround yourself with. Now, obviously, there really is some wisdom in that statement. Psalm 1 backs this up. The psalmist writes that the wise man does not walk with the wicked, stand with sinners, or sit with scoffers. Proverbs 13, verse 20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. And then Proverbs 24, verses 1 and 2, Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their hearts devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. So if you think that you can surround yourself with wicked people all the time, And not be tempted to wickedness yourself, you're a fool. If you consistently run with greedy people, you will likely become greedy yourself. Like my high school custodian said, choose wisely who you surround yourself with. All of that is true of you, and it's true of me. And you're kidding yourself if you think it isn't. But thankfully, it is not true of Jesus. Because when Jesus surrounds himself with sinners, they don't corrupt him with their presence. He graces them with his presence. And I'm confident that as Jesus sat through that great feast at Matthew's house, he never considered leaving the mission that God the Father called him to in order to take up tax collecting. I don't think that went through Jesus' mind. And that's because Jesus is not an easily misled high school student. Jesus is not a shady swindler looking for the next big opportunity to cheat someone and make a buck. Jesus is not a fool hoping to learn from these sinners. He's the doctor amongst the sick. He's the savior amongst the lost. He is the sinless Son of God, gracing sinful men and sinful women with his presence. 
But sadly, the Pharisees don't get it. In their hardness of heart, they can't see who Jesus really is. And their imagined self-righteousness, they can't even grasp the possibility that the God who shows grace to them might just also show grace to tax collectors, too. And their incredible underestimation of God's power, they have written these sinners off as a lost cause. They've forgotten about God's mercy, if they ever understood it at all. And they don't even realize it. But in doing this, they have proven themselves to be just as sick, just as much in need of a doctor, as the people they look down upon. The Pharisees are just as lost as those tax collectors. And they need a Savior just as desperately as they do. Now, I think this story gives us several lessons to take with us. Lesson number one is that God calls unexpected people. Sit back and think for a moment, really reflect. Who is your tax collector? Now, you may consider yourself a gracious, forgiving, very generous with the benefit of the doubt kind of person. But who is your tax collector? Who's the one person in this world you look down upon the most? What kind of people in your mind are completely and utterly beyond redemption? What is the one sin someone can commit that makes them, at least in your eyes, eternally unforgivable? In your mind, who is disqualified from receiving your mercy and may even be disqualified from receiving God's mercy? Well, someday... God just might call that person to follow Jesus. Someday that person may be your brother or sister in Christ. And if God in his wisdom and grace ever makes that happen, will you rejoice in his mercy? Or will you be scandalized, disappointed, or even disgusted that God would dare bring someone like that into his family? But remember that God often calls unexpected people. Another lesson is don't forget from where God called you. We're reading the story of Matthew, the tax collector, in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's writing his own story here. He's remembering his past sin and remembering when Jesus graciously called him out of it. You know, sometimes we hear that we should try to forget about our old sins. Remembering them will just weigh us down with guilt. And that may be true to an extent. We shouldn't constantly dwell on the past. But even though it's hard, maybe every now and then we should remember where we came from. We should remember the sin that once dominated our lives. We should remember the mercy that God has shown us. Because when we keep the mercy that God has shown us fresh in our minds, it might be a little easier to show mercy to those around us. So remember that God calls unexpected people. And remember from where God called you. The third lesson is that Jesus' mercy to sinners does not make light 
of sin itself. While Jesus is perfectly comfortable hanging around these people, he's not perfectly comfortable leaving them that way. Jesus doesn't say these tax collectors and sinners are perfectly fine the way they are. He says they're sick. They're sick. Imagine a doctor's waiting room full of sick people. The doctor comes out, and he talks with them, he laughs with them, he reads some of the outdated magazines with them. But then he sends the people on their way. Now that doctor might be kind, he might be personable, he might be hospitable, but he's not a good doctor. That's because a good doctor isn't content to let sick people stay sick. And that's also true of Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 31. This is Luke's account of the same event, the meal in Matthew's house. And we read in verse 31. Jesus answered the Pharisees, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The big difference between Luke's words there and Matthew's words that we read earlier are that Luke includes an additional word. Luke includes the R word, repentance. Jesus is comfortable in the presence of sinners. That's true in both accounts. But Jesus also calls sinners to leave their sin behind and follow him, to repent. And ultimately on the cross is where Jesus offers the healing that sinners need through his broken body and shed blood. Is Jesus comfortable with sinners? Yes. But he does not make light of sin itself. He calls us to repent. He calls us to leave sin behind and follow him. And then fourth, we cannot and should not isolate ourselves from sinners. That wisdom from my high school cafeteria custodian is valuable and true. We really should be careful who we surround ourselves with. Even with a well-intentioned desire to go out and share Christ with a sinful world, we must guard against being led into sin ourselves. That means knowing our weaknesses, practicing accountability, setting up appropriate safeguards against temptation. All those things are true. But we should also keep in mind that the Savior and Lord we are called to imitate didn't keep sinners at arm's length. And if he had, we certainly wouldn't know him. Jesus ate with sinners, drank with sinners, talked with sinners, listened to sinners, and laughed with sinners. He treated them like human beings created in God's image, desperately in need of his grace, because that's what they are. So may we follow his example. May we bring the good news of the good doctor to a sinful world. Telling them of how he has healed us and telling them that he can still heal them today. You know, there are sinners in this world who are not worthy of having Jesus come into their presence. In fact, they're sitting in this room right now. And one of them is standing on this stage. But that's the beauty of God's mercy. 
Thank God that Jesus is comfortable in the presence of sinners. But on top of that, thank God that Jesus is not comfortable leaving us that way. The doctor has come, and he has diagnosed our terminal illness. But he's also offered up himself as our cure. So no matter who you are, where you've come from, or what sin you're guilty of, you too can be healed by his mercy. So I pray this morning that you would repent of your sin, that you would believe in him, and that you would follow him. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. It's so easy to read this passage and focus all our attention on how you call tax collectors to follow you and how it's so incredible to think that you would call some of the worst of the worst in this world to follow you. And we look at different people and we think of different examples of all the awful people in this world and think, oh my goodness, how wonderful it is that you would call them to follow you. But it is just as amazing that you would call us to follow you. It's just as amazing that you would show us grace, that you would show us mercy, that you would show us love. Because in the big scheme of things, all of us sinners are in the same boat. We all need your mercy. We all need your grace. We all need your forgiveness. And through Christ, you have graciously provided it. And so, Father, I pray that every single one of us in this room would repent of our sins, would believe in your Son, and would follow him. Father, we love you, we worship you, we honor you. Thank you for calling people like Matthew to be your sons and daughters, and thank you for calling people like us to be your sons and daughters as well. This is all by your grace, and Father, we love you for it. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.